Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Rebecca Barry, Reagan Shields Ives and Elena Bobeva about transforming historic buildings to suit today's needs. Rebecca and Reagan work together at Fine Gold Alexander in the US, where Rebecca is the principal president of the practice as well as director of sustainability, promoting sustainable design practices, conversations and reviews firm wide. As a principal and studio leader, Reagan works on educational and cultural projects and is passionate about creating spaces that are welcoming, safe and supportive of users. Elena is an architect at Jasper Ayres Architects, sponsors of the 2022 WAN Female Frontiers Awards, and is passionate about preserving existing buildings by using innovative building techniques. She'll give us an insight into the changes made to the Chambon building in the historic heart of Brussels. This project is the largest ever conversion of a vacant office block in the city centre and has been developed, leaving preserved and restored historic buildings as well as introducing new ones. So welcome all. Thank you for your time today. We're talking about transformative design. To start with, I'd like you all to outline how you define this. And if I can go first of all to Rebecca. I would say on a personal level that transformative design is not merely about changing design aspects of a single building. It also has to involve a shift in sort of the impact that that particular structure or project might make in its greater community moving forward. I echo some of uh, Rebecca's sentiments regarding transformative design and answering it through the lens of an architect. I see it as using the built environment, and that's both the, the structure, but also the space around a building to make a fundamental impact on the immediate users, the surrounding community, and then also the, the broader environment. Elena, you have experience of bringing transformative design into the context of urban design within more historic neighborhoods. What do you think is special about these areas? I think it's important to notice that uh, historic neighborhoods are living creatures and they change every day. And even though we try to preserve them, it is valuable to assess uh, what is missing in a certain neighborhood and to try to bring that use or that feature back into the neighborhood to revitalize it and to create new life in it. And that's where I see transformative design very valuable. In the missing aspects of neighborhoods, we can create new uses or create new features that improve them and make them more vibrant. And I'd like to come to Rebecca again. If you're looking at transformative design, what would be your five key elements that you feel needed to be considered? So if we're talking about transformation, again, of existing structures, existing neighborhoods, I think we would focus on a few key things. The first of which would be, frankly, thinking about energy and how we can proceed in a way that gets us toward a carbon neutral future in all of our projects. I think we would think hard about 
the users and how people interact with the structure and the building and making that interaction something that speaks about today and where we are currently as a culture and as a society. I think also we would talk about the approach that we took to how our interventions were structured, you know, who decides what those interventions are and how they're made. I know that's not five, but I think those are probably (laughs) three big things that we would start our process with. I'm very aware that transformation doesn't necessarily mean knocking down and starting again. However, if you're adapting an older building, how much harder is it to work with a building that is already upright than starting afresh when you need to implement these new technologies? So I think what we would say uh, is that based on our practice, which really is about three quarters in uh, reuse and what we call adaptive reuse here in the U.S., we would not say it's harder. We would just say that it's different. And in fact, given everything that we have learned about embodied carbon, given what we know in terms of really thinking about preserving not just our built environment, but our cultural and our historical environment and thinking about how we can bring that forward, uh, we would say that it's really imperative to not be in the mindset that this is harder. Yes, there are challenges, but it can be done and it really should be done. When we're looking at older buildings and adapting them, where are the main costs coming from in that? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That could be an entire hour in and of itself. Um, (laughs) So that's a tough nut uh, to answer because in many ways it very much depends on the use for which the structure was originally intended and its current intended use. So in other words, if you're taking, let's say, a former um, religious facility and turning it into housing, uh, which we have done on multiple occasions, that's one thing, right? And a lot of cost there is in things such as, you know, hollowing out the structure, putting in kind of an all new um, inside, if you will, really thinking about how you can make good residential units for people under the constraints of everything from existing window locations to the fact that, you know, buildings designed in the Gothic style uh, have certain architectural elements that you have to work with. We sometimes call this thinking inside the box as opposed to thinking outside the box. And is it even possible to work to accreditation such as LEED and BREEM when you are retrofitting older buildings? It's absolutely possible. And (laughs) we've accomplished very high um, LEED scores, for instance, with existing buildings here in our practice and many practices across the states are doing it. You have to take a careful approach. You have to do a lot of analysis. In particular, one of the challenges has to do with retrofitting for energy efficiency. You have to think hard about, uh, for instance, how you apply insulation to what we call mass masonry walls. Uh, Luckily, we have good analysis tools and we can take the right approach. You have to think in a non-prescriptive manner. You have to be willing to really engage with a full energy model and look at the building holistically. And you do have to think about a word that we all hate to use, but we talk about it all the time is where are the trade-offs in terms of preserving select historic features that are the most important versus perhaps replacement of certain items to, to bring them up to the absolute most current code. And Reagan, if I could come to you now and ask you, how do you make historic buildings work for today's needs? 
Oftentimes we look at an existing building, a historic building, and there are many benefits to these buildings. Often the construction is very sound. The areas that often do require real intervention is the the systems, the mechanical systems, electrical, plumbing, um, that just are at the end of their useful life. And we often start there and look at what immediately needs to be removed. Sometimes we do try to consider what we can retain, but in the spirit of energy efficiency and always whether a project that we're working on is uh, looking for any kind of LEED certification or any kind of sustainability certification, we know that creating efficient systems is the best long-term solution. So when we evaluate the building, it's really kind of doing this uh, strategic assessment about what can stay. And oftentimes that is a lot of the building, the the envelope, the interior structure, the roof, all of these things that, you know, when you're building new, add, you know, significant uh, costs to the project because you're creating new elements for this, not to mention, you know, the carbon impact that that has on the environment. So looking at the jewels within that building And to Rebecca's point, uh, sometimes there are some trade-offs. Sometimes we have to look at, you know, the existing windows and they might be, you know, these beautiful uh, original windows, but do we need to consider removing those, replacing them with more energy efficient windows, but that are replications of the original windows. So it's doing a, a very thorough assessment. And in your experience of transforming historic buildings, what has been the greatest challenge that you have faced? I would say one of the biggest challenges is creating the space that we need to implement a lot of the new systems. When you think about historic buildings, you know their their solution for heating and cooling was opening the window, closing the window, and we're now trying to implement things like fresh air, uh, things like air conditioning into these buildings, and we just don't have the space a for the size of the the head end equipment or the infrastructure to weave the the systems through the existing building. So we have to be very creative about the process and the systems that we use. Um, We've used some creative uh, solutions, such as creating underground uh, mechanical rooms uh, that did not exist so that we could store the larger equipment in those spaces so that we're not taking away from valuable square footage within the existing buildings. And you've mentioned, you know, having to be creative with your solutions. So how difficult is it to make historic preservation or adaptive reuse projects energy efficient? What creative solutions have you found? Well, I think if we're looking at some of the the certification avenues that we often explore, things like LEED, you start with your site. And with a historic building, oftentimes they are located in more urban areas or more centrally located areas and have a number of the, the site elements that help to benefit energy efficiency and sustainability. We also look at, you know, implementing elements that many new buildings would incorporate anyway in terms of upgrading the LED lighting, using more um, efficient systems, and so reusing materials. That, that's of, often a big area where we're able to uh, achieve higher points for our certification because we are retaining so much of that existing building and not deferring much of that to, uh, to a landfill. So I find that while it does probably take a little bit more um, careful planning and thinking, 
existing buildings really do lend themselves to a lot of these um, certifications because the building already exists. It's already on a site. It already has many of the elements that um, we look to when we're creating ground up new buildings. So one of the biggest elements that we find we are able to address as well with existing buildings is air infiltration. So air infiltration is basically your biggest nightmare in terms of energy use because it carries with it heat and cold. It also carries with it moisture. So that is one of the first things we look at at elder buildings um, and simple simple moves such as properly air sealing windows. For instance, if you have historic windows that you can't replace, you can often retrofit them and restore them and make them simply close, seal properly, so that that takes away one major avenue of air infiltration. Additionally, many of our older buildings, particularly here in New England, where we are in the United States, are built again of masonry. And a proper pointing job of that masonry can also make a huge difference. We do limited insulation application at the interior again and in many ways it's not necessarily to increase the resistance of the wall to thermal as much as you would with a new building but it does air seal and so it helps us to keep whatever energy inputs that we're putting into the building in the building and it helps to keep things like cold damp air or warm moist air out of the building. And Reagan, one of the projects that you have worked on, the Gibbs School, which was originally built in 1928, can you tell us a bit about this and how you made an old building modern in order to suit the learning needs of children in schools today? Well, one of the things that was really interesting about the Gibbs School is, yes, it was originally built as a school in 1928. And then about 20 years ago, it was decommissioned as a school and used for other purposes. So they had already gone in and added partitions, took partitions away, created spaces for offices, um, for art studios. It had a whole other purpose for almost two decades. So when we approached the building, We needed to look at how it was originally built for educational purposes in 1928, but knowing how much teaching and learning has changed since then. So we had the exciting opportunity to really look at this project as a way to edit out many of the things that had been added over time and also thinking about editing out how one might teach and learn in 1928 versus now. So what that entailed was actually removing a number of walls, making classrooms larger. We look for larger learning spaces now to accommodate flexible learning within a classroom. So classroom sizes have grown. And also the opportunity for breakout spaces and collaboration spaces that occur outside of the classroom, which has become very common practice now. And so we actually removed, if you imagine a a long corridor with just a row of classrooms, almost removing some of the the teeth within the, the corridor so that we have these pockets to create collaborative learning spaces outside of the classrooms. And then thinking about how we might convert spaces like uh, a performer auditorium space that had been converted to many different uses over that time period where it was no longer acting as a school and how to open that back up again to create a multimedia uh, learning lab library area for students. So what we did was really pass through the building and determined how we could take what already existed there now, remove a number of the elements to improve that. 
all while looking at the existing building structure. And I think Rebecca had touched on a number of elements that we do have to consider related to code. But we were fortunate that the building was very soundly built in the 1920s. Unfortunately, it had had an addition built in the 70s. And that was the area where we found poor construction methods, things that weren't as code compliant. So looking at how we could improve the the building envelope, meet accessibility, and then we implemented all new building systems um, to make this a much more energy efficient building um, for, for learning. And how important would you say it is to have sustainable learning environments for students? I think it's absolutely imperative. I mean, students are our future and to have it become not just something that's an afterthought, but really baked into the design. And that's something that we've brought to many of our school projects. And it balances the the idea of um, cost savings, but also introducing students to the building systems that actually make the building function. And so we do that through exposing ceilings and showing the piping that runs through the ceiling, identifying you know what these elements are, even using labeling or color coding, so that as students are just passing through the hallways on their way to one class or the other, they're absorbing all of this. It's no longer just something that's happening kind of behind the scenes um, uh, and they're not even aware of it. We've also exposed the mechanical rooms. We created big open a picture window along one of the corridors so students could actually look in and see what's happening um, within the building and understand that you know this is actually how a building functions and how it operates. And there's opportunities too to use signage to point out elements about the design um, so that the, the whole building really becomes a learning opportunity for students. Thank you, Reagan. And Rebecca, to bring you in now, Feingold Alexander are signatories to the AIA 2030 commitment. Can you tell us a bit about what this means? So the AIA 2030 commitment is a commitment uh, to which many, many firms have now signed on and the list grows every day to continuously track the performance of our buildings relative to energy use and to continuously improve the performance of our projects relative to energy use with the ultimate goal of getting all buildings to being carbon neutral by 2030. And there's a sort of a, there's like a step down sort of process to this. So in other words, every year you're supposed to do a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. We actually literally just submitted uh, this year's performance metrics to the AA 2030 commitment, where you report on all the active projects in your office and what their predicted, what we call energy use intensity is. And that is relative to the amount of energy that they use on site to support the use of the building. The great thing about the AIA 2030 commitment is that this data is now out there and that there is a way of tracking this and you can gain access to other people's data and you can learn from each other, right? And try to understand how it is that different firms are getting to carbon neutral in their project portfolios. And an important aspect of your commitments to sustainability is to choose the right materials, including ones with third party verified health product declarations. I was just wondering, how much does cost play a part in what materials are used? (laughs) I would have loved to have answered this question three years ago versus (laughs) post-COVID. 
but leaving leaving that aside, um, so cost is always an issue, but we often find that there's not necessarily a cost difference, let's say, between using a material that is more healthy for the environment and one that is less healthy for the environment. This is a little bit difficult to answer at the moment because we are facing such kind of unprecedented disruptions in supply chains around the world. But certainly moving forward, we would say that it has been proved time and time again that you do not necessarily have to make that trade-off between the cost of a material and the environmental health of a material. And where does the drive for sustainable materials come from? Is it the government encouraging you to use these? Is it from the architects yourselves? Or is it from the clients? So we would say that it's everyone. And it depends upon the particular project. It depends upon the particular community. But in many cases, to be frank, a lot of this push has come from the grassroots. It has come from activists who have recognized um, environmental issues around things like persistent chemicals in the environment. And then, of course, um, there is the question around the government and regulations and push that comes from governmental agencies. Um, In the United States, uh, we would say that the government sort of in some ways catches up, right, to initiatives on the ground. And that simply has to do with our regulatory environment and the fact that we have a federal system in which each state gets to implement code issues in their own manner. Thank you. Elena, while you're working in the moment in in Belgium, you also have a link with the states. You studied at the University of South California, where you focused on architectural theory and historic preservation. And I know from conversations we've had prior to today, it's the historic preservation element that you feel very strongly about. Can you explain a little bit more about why you're so passionate about this? Thank you very much, Alison. Historic preservation, in my mind, is important because of the value of history on one side, but also as an architect, as for the value of preserving uh, existing structures. It is becoming more and more relevant with the sustainability in mind. But once built, a building should strive to preserve it. If I can try to define historic preservation, it can have different approaches, such as preservation or restoration, rehabilitation or reconstruction. But I think what is important is not only preserving the structure itself, but also bringing new life. And that's where I see adaptive reuse fits. How would you say that historic preservation is evolving when you're looking at it from a point of view of being able to work with adaptive reuse? I think a good starting point for uh, historic preservation for preserving a building would be to evaluate what most important features, most important historic features are in the structure and to try to preserve those and see if there is an opportunity to bring a new use or building techniques into the structure. What would you say would be a good place to start when you evaluate a building? for historic preservation. Would it be the envelope, the windows, ventilation? What's the key thing you need to start with? 
I think that uh, the starting point would definitely be the building envelope and evaluating what is already available to us, the walls, the, the ceiling heights, the openings, because that would give us not only the possibilities, that would give us a framework to look for solutions. We've talked as well about the Shambon building, which has changed use from a large vacant office block. Yes, indeed. How much of a challenge was that project? Shambon was, uh, it, it's a great example for such a adaptive reuse because it is in the historic heart of Brussels. Therefore, there is framework. You cannot build modern buildings without the, looking at the context. So it, it's really important to evaluate what is already there and evaluate the proportions and the different the features of the existing buildings and to see what of course if they're designated uh, landmarks or there are parts of the buildings that can be potentially demolished in the case of Shambon that was evaluated there were several buildings in the complex of the building block that uh, it was possible to be preserved and uh, reconstructed. And now it's a really significant building, isn't it? I believe it's got 248 apartments, some 132 student studios, offices and a boutique hotel. So that must be a very rewarding vision of historic preservation in, in action there. Yes, it was not only the buildings uh, that were, were preserved, but also the needs in the city for new uses. The obsolete office use was not anymore needed, and therefore the, the mix of apartments of various types and the offices and the hotels fit right into. There is also a very interesting element of this project, which um, is uh, open to the public, and that's the food court and the market, which are located in the old bank hall. And there, um, it's uh, even the interior is reused as much as possible, where the bank towers uh, were reused for the food courts. It was also the strategy of the owner to be able to reuse as much as possible uh, materials, not only from the site, but also to bring them from old bowling alleys, for example. And the interior of the public food court is uh, quite, quite interesting. And Chambon really is a sort of city within a building in some ways, in that people have access to so many facilities in one place. Do you find this kind of regeneration is a challenge from a planning and a regulation point of view, or do you find governments are generally supportive of it? I think that both sides are available. Um, of course, there is the strong building regulations that are not necessarily applicable to adaptive reuse projects, but also there is support in not demolishing existing structures and preserving as much as possible the already built buildings in the city. Okay, that's that's really positive to hear. And how do you approach adding renewable energy sources into historic buildings? I think that's always a challenge uh, to bring renewable energy resources because a lot of times that contradicts to the original historic looks of the buildings. But there are, of course, opportunities to place, for example, photovoltaic systems hidden from sight, high on roofs, in line with the roof structure, so they're not visible. And is there anything else that you would be able to put in, for example, like heat pumps or ventilation systems to, to make these historic buildings come alive again? Or is that just too challenging? 
That's absolutely necessary. The heat pumps and uh, new current mechanical systems are absolutely must, but the desire uh, is to minimize the energy requirements of the buildings, the air energy demand in general. So I think that the first step always has to be at looking at what the building envelope and what the existing structure can provide us to try to minimize the demand of energy using the building. The next step would be to bring in the current building systems to use. Sort of a further um, addition to Elena's comment about, you know, first you start with the envelope, right? And again, looking at things like the air tightness of the envelope, what you can preserve, what needs to be updated. But then in terms of the systems, and this is was touched on by Elena and Reagan a little bit, modern systems are extremely difficult in terms of you know heating, cooling, ventilation, et cetera, versus how these buildings were originally designed. One technology that has really been a game changer, once you get that envelope right, is frankly heat pump technology. So what we call variable refrigerant flow systems, Mitsubishi units, and <laughs> Mitsubishi was sort of one of the first major manufacturers in this area. You know, you see these all over over Europe. Frankly, Europe was ahead of the United States on this. Um, And the reason is because these units use refrigerant to exchange between heat and cooling. And the amount of space that those refrigerant lines take up is so much less than ductwork. And there's so much greater efficiency in using that refrigerant in many cases to provide that heating and cooling that they work quite well in older buildings. And we have used them quite successfully to retrofit into spaces where we just didn't have a lot of room. We've run refrigerant lines uh, by trenching plaster, things like that in older buildings. And then again, because heat pumps and similar technologies are electric, you can look at things such as strategically locating photovoltaics, you know, sheltered from roof lines, as Elena was saying, or you can look at um, even, you know, buying carbon offsets by purchasing electricity generated from renewable sources, which are all things that of course, you can't do if you're completely reliant on fossil fuels at the building location, right? So again, these are things that you can do at the building source so that as our grids um, around the world, you know, Europe, the United States, everywhere can become more green, then we will have source energy feeding that building that is also greener and uh, burns less fossil fuels and puts less carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. The idea of green energy, albeit not perhaps on site, but still utilised, is a positive way forward. One thing I just wanted to ask, Rebecca, you mentioned refrigerant use. Are there still concerns about the use of of refrigerant technology? Yes, there are. Um, So... No, they're not the best. This is true. This is absolutely true. Um, Refrigerant technology has greatly improved. Um, So, you know, older refrigerant technology was much worse for the environment than current refrigerant technology. I think, though, to your point, Allison, right, there's there is no kind of silver bullet here. Right. As humans, we have an impact on the environment. And we just have to sort of face up to that and try to make the smartest choices that we can, trying to make the best use of the resources that we have and the carbon that we have already expended and our cultural and, you know, physical history is a really good starting point. Yeah, I agree. It's not a perfect world, but we're doing the best we can with what we have. So 
Thank you all very much for your time today. A really thought-provoking conversation. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Elena, it was very nice to meet you, at least by voice. (laughs) Thank you. It was nice talking to everyone. Thank you all. We welcome your feedback on the podcast, so please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. So follow, download, and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are.